Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. It is, of course, the holiday season, and I think it's fair to say that for many people, the holidays are associated with extravagant home-cooked meals. So we're going to be talking about the opposite, processed food, fast food, and really just everything that defines the typical American diet. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this reminder of what you're definitely going to be eating again once that New Year's resolution wears off. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link. All right. Well, this one comes from Salon.com. It is called The Secretive, Sweet, and Sometimes Saccharine History of Artificial Birthday Cake Flavor. Hmm. That's so specific. <laughs> it is. It's an admittedly weird thing that the food industry has just sort of collectively decided on, like blue raspberry, even though raspberries aren't blue. Right. I mean, like there's a million different kinds of cakes and any cake you eat on your birthday is a birthday cake. Right. And yet birthday cake flavor brings a very specific thing to mind, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking like a white sheet cake with sprinkles and like frosting. Yeah. And that's it. White cake, white frosting and rainbow sprinkles. Oh and my that's God. What it is. <laughs> But apparently, as far as food trends go, birthday cake flavor is having a little bit of a moment. Sales of the artificial flavor have gone up 29% since 2017. And the author of this article takes a little trip around her neighborhood counting all the birthday cake flavored products, including not just obvious things like cake mixes and cookies, but also waffles, coffee creamer, protein bars, vitamins, (gasps) vodka, and vape juice. Wow. So, yeah, it's all over the place, apparently. So she decided to dive into the question of, first, what exactly is birthday cake flavor? Mm -hmm. And second, when did we as a society decide that it wasn't just for birthdays anymore? And it actually turns out that the first question of what it is is pretty tough to answer because, quote, flavor science is a notoriously secretive industry, Mm. which I did not know, but they get very into it because there are only 700 members of the Global Society of Flavor Chemists And most of them refused to speak to her, (gasps) citing proprietary technology and client confidentiality. Wow. Dang. One of the few who was willing to talk in generalities was Tom Gibson, who is the chief flavorist at Flavorman, which is a beverage development company in Louisville, Kentucky, that has worked with Ocean Spray, Jones Soda Company, and Ballatin Chocolate Whiskey. He admitted the term is nebulous and said what most people will initially have in mind is an indulgent, rich vanilla, but with a twist. Ultimately, this twist is what will make a particular product's version of birthday cake stand out, Mm. which kind of feels like a little subtle ad. He's like, if you want the twist, you know where to come. (laughs) (laughs) You come to the flavor, man. (laughs) That's right. But he described a little more. He said straight vanilla flavor has more of an eggy quality, while birthday cake has a stronger, more powdery vanilla flavor with an almost almond or cherry-like quality on the palate, Mm -hmm. which my palate, I will freely admit, not refined at all. So he describes these things, and I'm like, "Mm, all right, if you say so. It tastes like (laughs) sugar to me. (laughs) Another food scientist, Susie Bautista, was willing to get a little more specific. She says, the aroma chemicals for the creamy note are very important. Some creamy notes I use are delta decalactone, delta dodecalactone, sulfurol, and dimethyl sulfide, Mm. which uh, my mouth is watering. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Her personal favorite, though, is ethyl butyrate, 
because it will enhance the creamy character of the birthday cake flavor in addition to providing a berry top note. So again, with this like fruit aspect to it, so mm-hmm. I, I don't it's almost taste like it. perfumery the way that they're describing this because I know that like taste mm-hmm. and scent are very closely intertwined and like how they describe perfumes, it's really close in terms of like top notes, base notes, and you get a lot of that in wine too, don't you? Where they're like, oh, it's mm. oaky with a little bit of persimmon. You're like, okay, if you say <laughs> so. <laughs> as far as when it was invented, the first vanillin extract was created in 1858 by the pharmacist and biochemist Nicholas Theodore Gobley, but it was another two decades before a pair of German scientists opened the first vanillin factory and began selling the extract to food makers. That largely came about because of a key breakthrough in food science that revealed that the base chemical vanillin can actually be found in lower concentrations in other foods besides vanilla beans including clove oil, pine bark, and rice bran. Madagascar vanilla beans were still very expensive, so once they found cheaper foods to extract it from, vanilla became a dominant flavor in the Western cooking scene. Mm. And then, of course, like everything in the food industry, World War II played a big role. Artificial flavors in general got a boost because the military needed shelf-stable foods, and also flavored box mixes for cakes became a thing. Because Mm. basically Rosie the Riveter didn't have time to spend all day in the kitchen whipping up a birthday cake from scratch Mm -hmm. anymore. So the familiar vanilla-ish birthday cake flavor evolved out of this and was pretty universally stable by the 60s or 70s. But the real popularity kick came in 1989 with Pillsbury's invention of Funfetti, yes. a technological marvel that suspended <laughs> rainbow sprinkles inside the cake itself. And the article actually has like the OG Funfetti TV ad embedded <gasps> in it. And I'm not going to lie, I got a little hit of nostalgia. Like I remembered <laughs> watching it and being excited as a kid. I was like, oh my God, there's rainbow in it. Like It's already <laughs> in. And, and they had an accompanying frosting, I'm pretty sure, that did mm-hmm. the same thing. Oh, because the Funfetti mm-hmm. frosting was like manna from heaven whenever we had it in the house because we were making cupcakes or whatever oh so good eat it with a spoon baby (laughs) and that really was the game changer because from then on birthday cake wasn't just a flavor it was the visual experience of a white cake white frosting and rainbow sprinkles Mm -hmm. so the first non-cake birthday cake items didn't really gain traction until the mid-2000s at which point it was just an explosion Data Monitor reported that there were just three birthday cake flavored items released between 2005 and 2010. Then between 2011 to 2013, the number jumped to 17, including vodka, toothpaste, and protein powder. The argument on that last one was apparently like, oh, you're eating super healthy and trying to bulk up, but you don't have to give up the birthday cake taste. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that would convince me, but I'm not a bodybuilder. Maybe maybe it was very uh, It's like (laughs) you have the craving, but you want to be good. And so you just turn to science to at least say, okay, brain, you got your birthday cake sort of shut up. That's right. Make my protein powder rainbow. That's what I want. (laughs) And uh, of course, by now, there are hundreds of potential birthday cake flavored items. The author of the article counted 42 items currently for sale just in her local grocery store. Wow. Food professionals are actually pretty divided on the subject. Baker and writer Peg Alloy described it as the axe body spray of food flavoring. (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan Exum, a Louisville-based chef known for his sensitive palate, says he can understand why people like it because it's a quick way to cheat on a healthy diet that basically summarizes all the flavors of processed food and brings back memories of childhood or drunk binge eating. (laughs) (laughs) The two extremes. (laughs) 
And basically, it's been such a tough couple of years now that he says regular stress eating hasn't been enough. People want to stress eat something that also harkens back to a simpler time in their life. Well, it's not even just eating either. I mean, like if it's in, I know that it, there are lip balms that feature mm-hmm. birthday cake flavor and stuff like that. So it's just a, yeah, quick nostalgia hit. That's crazy. Yeah, they were talking about the lip balm as another example of like, you can't eat the sweets, but you can pretend you are. Just lick right. your lips and get that birthday cake flavor. <laughs> yes. Celebrate your birthday every day with your lip balm. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next Next link. All right. Next up, we have an article from LAMag.com titled How California-Born Restaurants Conquered America. Ooh. And it's sort of a review slash summary of a new book from Chef George Geary about the shocking number of major restaurants, especially fast food restaurants, that originated in Southern California. Hmm. And one of his major themes is this push-pull between the restaurant industry and the film industry. You know, on the one hand, celebrity endorsements do mean something on the national stage. And when, for example, Julia Child gushes about McDonald's French fries, which she did in 1973, or Anthony Bourdain declares unpaid that the best burgers in the world come from the In-N-Out burger chain, you know, that is going to affect a company's overall success, even Mm -hmm. if realistically everybody loves the seedy little burger joint in their neighborhood. And those just happen to be the burger places in the neighborhoods where the celebrities lived. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's also a surprising number of very successful restaurateurs who are based in the Los Angeles area, primarily because they failed at being in the film industry themselves. You know, there's this running theme that California is still a place where people with dreams and the ego to think that they can achieve those dreams go. (laughs) Brutal. (laughs) But where's the lie? (laughs) Yeah. And Geary's theory seems to be that that personality type also lends itself to being successful in the restaurant industry as well, which is pretty cutthroat, as is the film industry, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Geary himself readily admits that while he was a trained chef from the beginning, he too falls into this category of always wanting to be sort of pop culture adjacent. He was the mastermind behind the giant corn dogs that are apparently served at Disneyland. And for many years, he worked on the set of the Golden Girls, baking the cheesecakes that were apparently a staple of the show. (laughs) They were. They were always going late at night into the kitchen to hash it out over some cheesecake. And I had never heard of it. I went and looked it up. Apparently, (laughs) over the show's seven seasons, there were more than a hundred scenes where the four women sat around a table eating cheesecake. Yes, I am applauding. That sounds accurate. (laughs) Yeah. And it's especially funny when you learn that B. Arthur apparently hated cheesecake. Like, they had all these (laughs) interviews with her co-stars of like, yeah, we all knew, but we couldn't change the script at that point. So she would just sort of like push it around her plate. But if you look, she like never put it in her mouth on screen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. B. Arthur's not going to take anyone's business. I'm sorry. Absolutely not. She's like, you're going to pay me and I'm going to look like I'm eating cheesecake. That's called acting. (laughs) There you go. But so it turns out that the McDonald's brothers, for example, wanted to be in movies and they only created their restaurant chain after it became apparent that neither one was destined to make it. Other chains were started when people who were successful in Hollywood were looking for somewhere to plunk their money, such as IHOP, which was founded by filmmaker Al Lappin. And in his case, he kind of didn't even care about food at all. It was entirely a business decision. He saw long lines for the Bob's Big Boy restaurant and noticed that the building across the street was available to rent. So he opened IHOP purely to cash in on that overflow traffic. Hmm. Another case of success breeding success came from Glenn Bell, who was a high school student at San Bernardino High when he saw the pure efficiency of the brand new McDonald's that had just opened in 1948. And he decided to apply that same philosophy to Mexican food. 
and thus created the first Taco Bell. <gasps> Just a few years later, one of his best employees, John Gallardi, wanted to strike out on his own. So Gallardi went German instead and founded the Wiener Schnitzel chain, which is now the largest hot dog chain in the world with over 300 locations in the U.S. Huh. Baskin Robbins was also founded in Los Angeles, as was Laurie's, which is, of course, famous not only for its many restaurants, but also its prepared food innovations, including frozen fish sticks and Laurie season salt. Mm -hmm. Other innovations that have come out of California, according to Geary, include sesame seeds on buns, ice cream cakes, and allegedly the entire concept of Sunday morning brunch. Wow. Yeah. They gave us so much. Exactly. <laughs> the book also includes origin stories for things like nachos, tableside guacamole, and a long-running feud over which local restaurant first invented the concept of Taco Tuesday, which <laughs> I actually think is a great example of how Los Angeles exports its food culture to the rest of us, because I had never heard of Taco Tuesday until I saw the Lego movie, however many years back. Where, you know, obviously the writers lived in L.A. and just acted like this local phenomenon was something we all knew about. And now it is. I mean, how many places mm. across the country now are doing Taco Tuesday because L.A. told us that we're supposed to? So, yeah, I mean, I make the Taco Tuesday joke all the time, whether I'm having tacos or not. That's right. <laughs> well, it is Tuesday as we record this. So that follows. That's true. Oh, it is wow. Taco Tuesday. How did I not realize that? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> huh, OK. Now I definitely need another taco. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, Popular Science notes that we have too many jellyfish, so scientists want to cover them in chocolate. All right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm open-minded. I'm not going to immediately <laughs> reject it. Is this just like for fun or for eating? <laughs> it's just for punishment. There's too yeah. many. And so... <laughs> well, actually, yeah, you're both not wrong. Uh, we've got soaring jellyfish populations <laughs> that have been causing a lot of issues, notably in Europe. So in the Mediterranean, it costs a lot of coastal communities millions of euros in lost tourism revenue because they have to issue warnings like, you know, don't wade in too huh. deep into the water. Or put your heads underwater because they have, you know, thousands of stinging jellyfish in the waves. Or in Japan, fishermen often have to find their catch replaced by netfuls of jellyfish. And so instead of catching fish hmm. or getting jellyfish, even Sweden had to shut down one of its main power plants when thousands of jellyfish clogged its cooling pipes in 2011. Wow. So, oh, wow. yeah, big deal. They're causing a lot of havoc. And marine researchers are still not sure why we are having such a an increase in jellyfish swarms. Some people are thinking maybe warming temperatures, ocean acidification, pollution, and overfishing might be to blame. But another issue is that jellyfish are highly adaptable, and they're very skilled at surviving in warm and polluted and acidified waters, which are conditions that kill many other fish. And so they may outcompete smaller fish, taking their place in the food web. Whatever the case is, uh, the article notes, these brainless clumps of jelly have proliferated. <laughs> so scientists are trying to make the best of a goopy situation and turn these creatures into a money-making commodity so people will want to hunt and sell them rather than just throw them back into the ocean. So recently, mm -hmm. a collaboration of marine researchers from eight different countries began a project called Go Jelly <laughs> to, <laughs> to create an array of jellyfish products, including water filters, fish feed, face cream, fertilizers, and food. Mm. They also want to address microplastics pollution. So tiny particles of plastic, usually from cosmetics products, are too small to be removed by most sewage treatment facilities, and so they just end up in the ocean. 
So Go Jelly is developing a water filter made of jellyfish mucus that could、Ooh. capture those particles during sewage treatment. The work is very novel, but it builds on prior research that shows how jellyfish mucus can remove nanoparticles, which are smaller than even microplastics. They're also experimenting with adding jellyfish to agricultural fields as fertilizer. Sometimes they grind them up into a sludge or、mm. plop them down whole. <laughs> just drop them. <laughs> just drop them in the ground. And even in China, some scientists have attempted to feed farmed fish a mixture of jellyfish and standard fish food, and the results have so far been encouraging. Something in the jellyfish, and this is kind of an ominous statement. Something in the jellyfish makes both fish and plants. Grow bigger, faster. What could、hmm. possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this feels like the beginning of like one of those cautionary tales、mm -hmm. where everyone's hopped up on jellyfish goo. Yeah, like yeah. stingers. Generally speaking, are the thing that gets you high in the animal world. Like venom <laughs> in smaller quantities is usually a drug. So、mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe they're getting jacked because they're just like <laughs> super energetic. Well, speaking of consumption, a group at the University of Denmark recently devised a way to make a jellyfish snack chip. And the way they do this is they dunk the jellyfish in ethanol and then leave it to air dry on a cookie sheet. <laughs> But so far, there still isn't much of a market for these gelatinous creatures. These are all sort of newer experiments in seeing how we can use this overpopulation of jellyfish. And there's also, of course, a cultural resistance hurdle, right?、Mm -hmm. So some have described them like eating quote salty rubber bands. Mmm, <laughs> tasty. It reminds me of tapioca boba. Yeah, like it's the tea with the pearls in it. You could put little bits of jellyfish in my tea. I'd drink it. <laughs> <laughs> like a salted caramel frappuccino、yeah. kind of thing. Well, and it sounds like we gotta figure something out because if they're like the cockroaches of the sea, where they're so、exactly. adaptable that they're gonna live through anything we do, we gotta we gotta use them. Exactly. We need to start developing a taste for them. But you know, this still doesn't address the root cause of why we have so many dang jellyfish. So the way、mm. that jellyfish reproduce, any ideas on how they reproduce? Uh, grossly. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I kind of assume they just will themselves into existence. I'm not totally sure. Well, good news, you're both right.、Uh, it's a gross kind of willing into existence here.、Uh, they reproduce with stalk-like polyps on the sea floor. So harvesting ones that make it to the water surface might not change the intensity or frequency of all of these jellyfish blooms. But you know, in the meantime, at least trying to figure out how to tap into this abundant resource is got to be better than just throwing it away. And Harvesting some of them might reduce accumulations along the coast, at least temporarily, so people can swim without all these warnings of "don't put your head in the water."、Mm -hmm. <laughs> I still think I think that we're going to find out the toxin is like a cure for cancer or something. We got like there's got to be something in the stinging aspect that we can use. Yeah, especially if it's something that other animals use to get buzz. I mean, <laughs> we're, hey, we're due for a designer <laughs> drug, is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> like you know, once this pandemic lifts, we'll be able to go. Hey man, hey man, want to do some jelly? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So you guys are probably aware of the sort of wine snob factoid that champagne isn't really champagne unless it's from the Champagne region of France,、uh, right? Yes, that's been、mm -hmm. good meme fodder. That's right. So the legal term for that sort of thing is a protected designation of origin, or PDO. The fancy term for it is terroir, the taste of a particular geography. And、mm -hmm. turns out that that also applies to a certain degree to cheddar, and <laughs> that's what this article from Genro Smith at CNN Travel is about. It's called "Cheddar Empire: Rise of a Cheese Superpower." 
(laughs) Wow. Because we all love cheddar. It's very popular. And it sort of goes into why is it the dominant cheese? I mean, there's thousands of types of cheese out there. Why is it that cheddar just wins everybody's heart? So the PDO actually is not just the word cheddar. In uh, the surrounding area of Cheddar, England, the designation is West Country Farmhouse Cheddar. You cannot put that label on your cheddar unless it comes from this area. And the thing that makes this area supposedly unique is they have these limestone caves which serve as natural refrigerators during the aging process. So that's sort of their claim to fame. And they've got the old world techniques down, which obviously a lot of modern cheddar producers aren't using. They said the region started producing cheese since at least the 12th century. But cheese back then was not really what we think of as cheese today. It was more like kind of a curds and whey cottage cheese soft Mm. product. The modern concept of cheese really started to come around in the 17th century when they invented these wooden presses and a cooking stage was introduced. And that's when it became the firm product that we know of as cheese today, right? Hmm. The main reason, of course, for introducing these technologies was that it made less moisture and you could make a larger wheel size, which meant that it Mm. could ship farther, Mm. most especially to the very fashionable London. That Mm. was the really big beginning of food shipping at that time was this idea of we can get it out of our village and get it somewhere even slightly farther away. Huh. So was Cheddar like one of the first villages to do this, essentially? Yeah. I mean, they they had all of the different villages making their own cheeses. And the Cheddar region was one of the earlier ones to say, we know how to make this more durable. And so they kind of got mm. at the beginning of the market and it just, you know, took over. Everybody in London loved it because they don't have a lot of cows in downtown London. So cheese is a luxury <laughs> that has to be brought in. Then, of course, story of the world, cheddar got to the rest of the world through colonists, right? They took it with them everywhere. They had a cheese scientist, which I did not know was a thing, and I now have a new life goal. (laughs) His name is Paul Kinstedt of the University of Vermont, and his quote was, wherever the English go, cheddar reigns. They took it to every colony, and he said, actually, it's really easy to determine which of the colonies became dominant white people And which ones did they fail to sort of displace the native populations? Because in places like Quebec, where the French immigrants took hold, even today, French cheeses are still preferred. Cheddar never took off in India or Kenya or some of these other colonies where the British were there, but they were really just sort of in a minority ruling position. They didn't Mm -hmm. slaughter and displace all the natives. Thank goodness. But in (laughs) Canada and Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., anywhere that, you know, the white people took over... Cheddar is currently king even to this day. And in fact, it became super popular in the U.S. because we had so much more land. We could do so many more cows. In 1875, the U.S. surpassed England and started exporting cheddar back to England. (laughs) And at that point, they were exporting 100 million pounds a year. And it just. Whoa. Yeah. And that was in 1875. I mean, it just kept growing. America was the dominant cheddar force for a long time. And (laughs) the article actually talks about how just in somewhat recent years, cheddar's dominance fell. There is a new cheese that took the crown in 2006. It was mozzarella. Nice. Ah. And that's largely due to America's appetite for frozen pizzas. Yeah, I see that. Mm -hmm. So the frozen pizza industry basically completely flipped everything through mozzarella from an Italian cheese that was maybe sometimes used but not so much into just the absolute top slot where it has been to this day. And the flip side of that is that these sort of artisanal flavors and old school processes 
have been on the rise as sort of luxury cheeses, right? People are starting Mm. to get more interested in less mass-produced cheeses. And it's ironic because, of course, the original reason for cheddar was to make this marketable shelf-life product. And now people are like, no, no, I want to go back to the farm in Cheddar, England and get like this cloth-wrapped, artisanal, delicious cheese that's going to, you know, (laughs) rot very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if New York has the same sort of thing because I know like New York super or extra sharp is a thing. They may have their own, what is it, the PDO, P-O-D? Oh, yeah. Well, the PDO is like a legal designation of what you can call it. But definitely Mm -hmm. every different area has different bacteria. Right. Because that's kind of what actually makes it all. It all starts as milk. The thing Mm -hmm. that makes it into different flavors and different types of cheeses is the type of bacteria that you're using to ferment it. And Mm. just like I mean, it's a living thing. Different environments, different climates are going to produce different cultures. Right. And Mm -hmm. some cultures simply are not going to thrive in other environments. You're not going to be able to make a particular type of cheese, even if you go and get that bacteria and bring it to Arizona. It's not going to live. Right. So mm. you Arizona cheese. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> and some of those bacterial cultures become imperialists, apparently. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, Kate Wheeling at Smithsonian Magazine has brought us a brief history of peanut butter. Ooh. And the first fascinating fact that my ethnocentric little brain did not realize is apparently peanut butter is a quintessentially American food. Other countries just don't eat it. Yeah, I had no idea. I was like, of course everybody eats peanut butter. They have a quote from Anna Navarro, who's a Nicaraguan-born political commentator. She told an NPR reporter in 2017 that she knew she had fully become an American when she realized she loved peanut butter. (laughs) So I guess, yeah, it's not not a thing anywhere else. But as of 2020, nearly 90% of American households consume peanut butter. And veteran food critic Florence Fabricant called peanut butter the pate of childhood. Huh. Ironically, China and India both grow more peanuts than we do, but America is the one eating them. It was not strictly an American invention, as the Incas were grinding peanuts several hundred years ago, but the practice pretty much disappeared with them, and it wasn't until the late 1800s that it suddenly reappeared in North America. Now, the article credits John Harvey Kellogg, the self-certified health guru of Kellogg cereal fame, who did indeed file a patent in 1895 for a food compound that involved boiling nuts and grinding them into an easily digestible paste. However, the comments section on this article went a little nuts, haha, with uh, <laughs> people pointing out that actually the Canadian Marcellus Gilmore Edson filed a similar patent nine years earlier in 1884. And the reason Kellogg was granted his own patent was because Edson's process specified using roasted peanuts, while Kellogg's was meant for a variety of raw nuts. And Edson's paste also wasn't meant to be eaten directly. It was just an intermediary step in the making of a peanut candy that he'd invented, all of which was apparently enough of a difference for the patent office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the article, like the comments on this article were crazy. At another point in the article, they just casually mentioned the inventor of the sliced bread machine. And a ton of the other comments were like, actually, this other guy did it first, but his prototype was destroyed in a fire in 1912. (gasps) So clearly the readers of Smithsonian Magazine are on top of their historical facts, for sure. It's a rare case where the comments are actually worthwhile. (laughs) They were. It was was relatively polite, but also there was a lot of like, "Uh, I beg your pardon, you've been uh, mistaken here. But um, back to Kellogg. He created the substance as a healthy meat alternative for the spa patients staying at his Battle Creek Sanitarium because he believed that meat was a digestive irritant and, what's worse, 
a sinful sexual stimulant. Oh, uh, which he okay. was very much like, no, we don't do that. It's not good for the body. Right. So in practice, he actually preferred almond butter because at the time, apparently almonds were cheaper than peanuts. That's not the case huh. anymore. But no. uh, the flavor of peanut butter was stronger and quickly grew more popular. So as early as 1896, good housekeeping was encouraging women at home to make their own peanut butter with their meat grinder, which they also presumably had in the house, and suggested <laughs> pairing the spread with bread because I don't know how else you're going to eat it. <laughs> Joseph Lambert, an employee at Kellogg's Sanitarium, who may have been the first person to physically make the peanut butter for the patients at the sanitarium, soon invented machinery to roast and grind the peanuts on a larger scale. He actually launched the Lambert Food Company, selling both pre-made nut butter and the mills to make it. So it became something that you could buy for your home and also something that other peanut butter companies could purchase and start selling their own versions huh. of peanut butter. World War I, though, was the real kick to peanut butter's popularity. Because while not everyone agreed that meat was bad for you, everyone did have to deal with meat rationing. And mm. at the time, government pamphlets were promoting meatless Mondays to support the war effort. And in their suggestions of substitutes, they put peanuts as a good high-protein alternative. But despite the government's support at home, peanut butter was not sent to soldiers overseas during World War I because of its tendency to separate. I don't know if you Ooh, eat any yeah. of, like, the super fancy peanut butters that do separate. <laughs> That's the kind I have in my house, I freely admit. Yeah. And it's not so bad. Yeah. You just stir it up. But apparently, like, it spends a month on a boat and it's, the separation is worse, I guess. I don't know. Sure. But in 1921, Joseph Rosefield filed a patent for partial hydrogenation of the naturally occurring oils. And by World War II, peanut butter was a staple of every military commissary. And they huh. note in the article that when expats overseas are like craving peanut butter and they apparently can't get it in all these foreign countries that they're living in, the main place they all head to is the local military base because military commissaries always have peanut butter no matter where they are in the world. Huh. Yeah. So if you're ever abroad and get a craving, that's <laughs> where you can go. <laughs> Rosefield himself went on to found Skippy brand peanut butter, which was apparently the first to introduce crunchy peanut butter as well as wide mouth jars that were easier to use with a knife. And I guess before mm. then they just had like bottles. I don't know. I can't imagine <gasps> a not wide mouth peanut butter. Yeah. Jar. I mean, it seems highly inconvenient. So good on him yeah. for introducing that, I guess. And despite the fact that it is still hard to find worldwide, we are slowly winning the battle for peanut butter supremacy. In 2020, <laughs> sales of peanut butter in the UK surpassed sales of jam for the first time. And the British what? love their jam. Yeah. And that's like, yeah, that, uh, the way they phrased it, I think they mean a combination of all jams. So that's a lot of peanut no. butter for the UK that to be is. purchasing. I mean, it seems like you could easily get it in the UK at the very least. Huh. They don't go into the rise in peanut allergies at all. I guess that hasn't affected the sales. I mean, I freely admit we have peanut allergies in my house and we have both peanut butter and almond butter because the people who can eat the peanut butter are like, I'm not giving that up just because <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this guy can't eat it. We're going to have both. So we have big X's on the lids. It's fine. <laughs> 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 no skull and crossbones no I, i'm not that artistic i'm just like ah, big <laughs> that's the extent of my skills <laughs> next link next link all right this next one is from julia carmel at the new york times and it's called the big tuna sandwich mystery and it features a company that unfortunately has had a number of bad press incidents in the last couple of years, the Subway sandwich chain. Aww. You may recall a court in Ireland famously ruled a while back that their bread had too much sugar to be classified as bread. Mm -hmm, and yeah. now 
They are facing a class action suit in the state of California that alleges their tuna salad contains no actual tuna. What? Wow. Yeah. Now, it's worth noting Subway is categorically denying the allegations, saying in a statement that Subway delivers 100% cooked tuna to its (laughs) restaurants, which is mixed with mayonnaise and used in freshly made sandwiches, wraps, and salads that are served to and enjoyed by our guests. (laughs) Thank you, PR. Yes, exactly. But like any good journalist, Julia Carmel wasn't taking their word for it and decided to find out for herself. So she procured what she described as more than 60 inches of Subway tuna from three different (laughs) locations around Los Angeles, which I assume means approximately 10 six-inch subs. Mm -hmm. Then she scraped off the tuna, froze it, and shipped it to a commercial food testing lab. Several labs actually turned down her initial request, citing both technical limitations as well as vague company policies. And the lab that did finally agree to test the tuna for her asked that their name not be used as the lab manager didn't want to jeopardize any opportunities to work directly with America's largest sandwich chain in the future. (laughs) Wow. Hmm. But before we get to the results, the article goes surprisingly in-depth into both the history of canned tuna as well as the processing it takes to get from the boat to the store. So at its peak during the 1980s, an estimated 85% of homes had canned tuna in their pantry, after which it began a slow decline that was either due to growing concerns about mercury levels in fish, which is a real thing, or Mm -hmm. if you prefer fake excuses, one New York Times editorial attributed the drop in sales to millennials who, quote, can't be bothered to open and drain the cans. Oh, right, boomer. Yeah, millennial takes a side. I'm not even a millennial, and I find that one really irritating. But Yeah, that's offensive. During the pandemic, however, sales of all shelf-stable foods skyrocketed. And Nielsen Holdings reports that about 700 million cans of tuna were sold in the U.S. last year. The article doesn't have any data on how Subway has fared during COVID, but it does link to another New York Times expose from two years ago in which a Subway franchise inspector admitted to sabotaging certain stores that the head office had decided it wanted to put under new management. So Subway's just got problems out the wazoo. Yeah. But back to the tuna. According to the FDA's seafood list... There are 15 species of nomadic saltwater fish that can be legally labeled as tuna. The most common are skipjack tuna and yellowfin tuna, known in the lab as K. palamis and T. albacares. And these are the two that Subway claims to use. And most of the industry professionals interviewed for this article agree that if Subway's tuna isn't tuna, it's not their fault. They're just buying cans from wholesalers that are labeled Mm, tuna, mm -hmm. and it's the wholesalers who routinely swap out fish for less desirable or more readily available species. Mm -hmm. One study from the early 2010s showed that between 26 and 87 percent of all fish at the store is mislabeled, including not just canned fish, but whole fish behind the counter as well. (gasps) And a lot of that is because biologically, a lot of species are very close and we really, as consumers, cannot tell the difference between a grouper and a cod and a, mm-hmm. you know, monkfish or whatever. And sometimes it's just marketing. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever eaten mahi-mahi. You know, it's like a popular mm-hmm. Hawaiian fish. It didn't used to be named mahi-mahi. It used to be named dogfish. And no one was buying it when it was called dogfish. So they're like, ooh, let's give it a cool Hawaiian name. And now it's one of the biggest sellers. So, wow. you know, if they're tricking us, it's partly because we're annoying and stupid and won't buy normal <laughs> fish. They also have a great quote in the article from a current sandwich artist who says that she and her coworkers have gotten a fair number of questions about the tuna since the lawsuit was filed. Quote, customers will bring it up and we just go, I don't know, what kind of cheese do you want? 
(laughs) (laughs) Nice. But people are asking, this has gotten some publicity. So, you know, what ultimately were the results of the tuna lab test? Sadly, they were unable to find any extractable tuna DNA. Hmm. (gasps) But the lab spokesman was quick to point out that both the cooking and the canning processes break down proteins making anything in that state very hard to identify in the first place. And a separate investigation by Inside Edition did find tuna DNA in three separate samples of Subway's tuna sandwiches. So at least some Subway franchises are having actual tuna in their tuna sandwiches. Wait, but so by the time it gets to the lab or into our mouths... It's no longer identifiable via lab tests? Well, yeah, by PCR DNA tests, because DNA gets broken down. Because mm. you have to cook it, and you have to shred it, and you tear it off the bone, and then you cook it again, and you put it through the canning process. I see. So it's just fish mass at right. that point. Right. Yeah, there's fish mass. And also, when this woman takes it from Subway, it's also mixed with mayonnaise at that point. Mm. So there's all this egg DNA in there as well. Mm. So. Since the Inside Edition investigation, the plaintiffs have amended their claim and are now alleging only that Subway's tuna salad is not 100% sustainably caught skipjack and yellowfin tuna, which seems like a real loophole. Like, Subway never claimed it was sustainably caught. (laughs) Right. So it feels like there's at least a chance that the whole thing is a publicity scam, just hoping that Subway will give them a settlement rather than going through the (laughs) hassle of a lawsuit and the bad PR. Mm -hmm. As a side note, the photos in this article are bizarre. (laughs) Like, you normally would expect, you know, a photo of the plaintiffs on their way into court or maybe a staged portrait of the lab guy in front of a bunch of test tubes or whatever. But most of the pictures in this article are just cell phone shots by the author. Like, here's a Ziploc of tuna salad on my kitchen counter. And here's the hand of a UPS guy putting a label on my package. And then the rest are these more symbolic shots, including the one at the header of the article, which are literally just different angles of a wrapped Subway sandwich frozen in a block of ice inside a plastic bucket. Like, it's, it, they're utterly weird. And, like, maybe they were supposed to be artistically cropped and nobody got the memo. I don't know. But I, I was really taken aback by the photos they chose to accompany this otherwise very interesting and New York Times-worthy story. So uh, maybe I'm getting a photographer fired right now. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe that photographer was fired, which is why the journalist had to come up with something right quick. Right, right. At the last second, they were like, uh, could you get some quick pictures of tuna on your canteen counter? <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for this holiday bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damn interesting week. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye bye.